Hey, it's Mercedes. Welcome back to another episode of the West Block Podcast. The surge of COVID-19 cases across the country dominated the news cycle once again this week. Canada's daily numbers continue to break record after record, and that's causing doctors across the country to sound the alarm louder and louder. On top of that, Canada's top doctor delivered a stark message on Friday. Dr. Teresa Tam said that if we don't contain the spread of COVID-19 now, cases could skyrocket to 10,000 a day. We saw premiers take to the podium announcing more and more restrictions aimed at trying to curb the spread. The feds have offered more help, but made sure to tell the premiers that they need to remember the money can't and won't keep flowing forever. Meanwhile, Canada's opposition parties have questions about the government's pandemic response and a brand new Opposition Day motion that will call on the government to ban Huawei within 30 days and crack down on intimidation of Chinese Canadians by the government of China. Here to give us the latest coming out of the Conservative caucus room is Aaron O'Toole, leader of the official opposition of Canada, the Conservative Party. Welcome to the show. Great to be with you. We've been seeing record numbers for some time now, and that is continuing. The Canadian Medical Association put out a warning late last week saying that the measures that are being taken right now to mitigate the virus are not sufficient and that they believe we are facing a crisis. There are doctors in the media saying that Canadians are going to die unless there are not more measures taken. Would you support the premiers bringing back lockdowns? And do you think that that needs to happen to stop the spread? Well, the Prime Minister of Canada needs to partner with the premiers wherever possible and collaborate, not confront, which Mr. Trudeau likes to do too often. This is why, Mercedes, we've been so frustrated with the lack of rapid test rollout in Canada. Many of our allies around the world have used rapid tests to give certainty to get frontline workers back if they're worried about an exposure, reduce quarantine times, help keep the economy moving as much as possible. But obviously, public health needs to be a paramount consideration. And provinces are trying to restrict the spread as much as possible, learn the lessons from the first wave of the pandemic in terms of long-term care, those sorts of things. And so as, as prime minister, I would be looking to partner with them and then really advance approvals, control the border better. So I think collaborations needed during a public health crisis. I know you're the leader of the opposition, so you have to criticize the prime minister. In fairness, though, it is up to the premiers to decide whether or not they want to activate shutdowns in their provinces and hotspots. So I just want to come back to that with you. Do you think that the premiers should be looking at lockdowns, given what we're hearing from medical doctors? Well, I know the premiers in my own province, Premier Ford, is working with the public health leadership within Ontario. I know that cities, some of the large city mayors are working with their teams to try and limit the ability for people to gather, to, to be exposed. And I, I know they're also trying to make sure that the economic impact is not as profound. So it's a very, very tough balance. But I see every premier of all stripes, to be honest, uh, doing what they can to make sure that the spread is reduced, to educate the public, to promote mask use. My issue is the first wave, we were slow on the border. We were slow with emergency response programs. The tracing app is not a national tracing app, and we didn't have the test that Mr. Trudeau promised in March. So the federal government needs to do a better job and should collaborate wherever possible. 
Mr. O'Toole, I know that you're bringing a motion before the House this week. It's your Opposition Day motion relating to China. You're calling on the federal government in it to say no to Huawei within 30 days. You're also calling on the government to develop a strategy to address operations of Chinese agents within Canada that have influenced Canada or in some cases have attempted to intimidate Chinese Canadians. I know you have a policy which is a very tough stance on China, but some folks say the government has been less likely to go ahead with that because they're concerned about the welfare of the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. And while I think that there's a lot of Canadians who might support what you're proposing, are you concerned about the effect that this could have on the two Michaels? No. In fact, we've been advocating for the two Michaels from the days they were taken when Trudeau called their cases regular consular cases, misled Canadians with respect to why they were arrested by China. We, they've been in prison for over 700 days, uh, Mercedes. Over a year ago, a less period of time, the Liberals promised a decision on Huawei before the last election. That was a year ago. All of our allies have made the decision on Huawei and the 5G. All experts say that Canada cannot be an outlier. We can't put risks to our future digital economy by allowing Huawei, a state-owned Chinese enterprise, to help construct it. The Trudeau government never makes tough decisions. They kick them down the road. So what we've said is we know they know what the answer is. In the next 30 days, they should be honest with Canadians, honest with their allies, and uh, highlight the risks and, and the intimidation that hundreds of Canadians and families are feeling from Chinese communist uh, influence operations in, in Canada. We're bringing a motion to have a serious public education discussion and make the government take these issues seriously finally. Well, and those are issues that we have reported on extensively here at Global News, especially on the intimidation of Chinese Canadians by the Chinese state here in Canada, particularly if they're presenting dissenting opinions against the Chinese Communist Party. Australia has taken a tougher stance, and you cite that in your motion, but they've also faced some pretty serious repercussions for doing that, including massive cyber attacks. Do you think that Canada is ready for the inevitable retaliation from China if we get tougher? This is where we need to work with Australia and our Five Eyes allies, Mercedes, to make sure that we have a counterbalance, both in terms of size, economic strength, to counteract the intimidation that, that Beijing does. They've been doing it against Australia. Uh, they've, been, they've been known to do it against Japan and other countries. The more we work with like-minded allies, the more we can counteract that influence and reduce their ability to isolate Canada or isolate Australia. This is why we have to get in line with our allies. Canada's the only country that has not made the decision that Huawei can't be part of the 5G infrastructure. The world, the democratic world is watching for Canada to see if Mr. Trudeau is gonna finally get serious with China from a security, human rights and a trade perspective, or is he still gonna have this naive admiration for the basic dictatorship? This is a, a time for leadership and, and that's what we're pushing for with the motion. Would you be willing to take some tougher steps, like cutting off, for example, foreign student visas for students who are coming from China, or even potentially sanctioning China? We've talked about the use of Magnitsky sanctions with respect to the two Michaels, and possibly with respect to the horrific human rights abuses of, of Uyghur Muslims within China. We can no longer turn a blind eye. And I've said, Mercedes, in the last 20 years, all parties, all democratic countries, tried to engage hoping that China and the WTO and other things would start moving towards respect for rule of law, for human rights. It's gone the opposite. 
So when things are not working after a generation, it's time for some leadership to take a different approach. That will never happen under the Trudeau Liberals who've been unfortunately way too close and inappropriate with some of the relations with communist China. It's time for a fresh approach to leadership and that's what the conservative government in waiting is offering. Can I ask you to elaborate on that, on, on your comments about members of the Liberal Party who have been too close to China? Who is that? Mr. Trudeau himself. Uh, he appointed to his transition committee a senior person from the Canada-China Business Council. He attended cash for access fundraisers with uh, figures close to the regime in Beijing who made donations to the Trudeau Foundation, Mercedes. As the minister who announced the Afghan war memorial for Ottawa, the Trudeau government canceled that memorial while Beijing influence were planning through the Trudeau Foundation to put a statue to Pierre Trudeau in Montreal. He's been too close and naive from day one. So this is what Canadians want, a more serious principled leader at home and on the world stage. And that's what they'll get with me. So does that mean that you believe Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is being influenced by Beijing? Mr. Trudeau is naive on China. And I've not been the only one to say that. Former ambassador David Mulroney has said that. Mr. Trudeau has some romantic notion, perhaps based on his father's uh, first forays into China a generation ago, that this is just an economic opportunity for Canadians. We do not sell out on our values. And I think it's time um, Canadians want to see a principled candidate on the world stage, not a naive leader like we see with Mr. Trudeau. So he will have to answer why he attended some of those events, Mercedes. I'm saying the Conservatives will have a principled approach. We will stand up for human rights, for security, and for a fair, balanced approach on trade. You've made an appeal as the Conservative leader to members of unions to vote Conservative. And that has come as a surprise to some people, considering the position of the Harper government on unions and the way that you voted against some bills that dealt with unions. How do you square that 180? Well, I've developed really good relations with many unions, union members and leaders in my own riding, the Power Workers Union, members of Unifor, it's well known that Jerry Diaz and I have not gotten along on, on NAFTA or tariff priorities, for example. But I want Canada to get working again. I want opportunities for families, whether in the energy sector, the auto sector, softwood lumber. If I can partner with union leaders who, who care about the well-being of their members just as much as I do, I want to partner. I come from a union town. You know, I'm a kid from a GM family. Uh, I have a lot of respect for, for unions, and I think we're going to try and build some partnerships. Does that make you feel weird at all in retrospect uh, about how you voted? No, I've, I've been talking actually with a number of union leaders who have concerns about some of the bills from the past. And as we are taking the Conservative Party into the next generation of leadership, at a time where we're seeing the, the, the coronavirus disruption of trade, the rise of China, we need to build new partnerships. And, and I'm willing to work, reach out and work with them. And even some people I've sparred with in the past, if, if I can be a partner to them now and, and help their members alongside their priorities, you'll see that. I was really proud to see Unifor and Mr. Dias help bring auto assembly back to Oshawa. That's personal for me. And I, I applaud that on your show. And, and so that's what leadership is, is learning, reaching out and building coalitions for the well-being of Canadians. That's what the Conservatives are all about. Great. Aaron O'Toole, thank you so much. Thank you. You can get the rest of my conversation with the opposition leader, Erin O'Toole, on this week's bonus episode. But don't go anywhere. I'll be chatting with Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Minister Marco Mendicino. That's up next. And just like that, we're back. 
After international outrage over more crackdowns by China in Hong Kong, the Canadian government announced new immigration measures to help Hong Kongers come to Canada, taking a tougher stance on China. Joining me now to talk about all this and more is the Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship, Marco Mendicino. Thanks for having me, Mercedes. You announced some pretty significant changes in Canadian immigration law relating to people from Hong Kong coming to Canada. You'd previously said that democracy activists would be able to come here. That's something uh, that Hong Kong activists had been asking for. Now you've expanded it to include people who are not just democracy activists, but meet certain levels of employment or education to be able to come here. What led you to this decision to try to allow more Hong Kongers to come to Canada? Well, first, I was very pleased to uh, announce the new immigration initiative for recent graduates and young Hong Kongers uh, to pursue a faster pathway to becoming Canadian. Uh, this will be good for our economy today. It'll be good for our long-term prosperity. We're also going to promote existing immigration routes for those people from Hong Kong who wish to uh, come back to Canada. And finally, we have also announced some additional protections under our asylum system, which reflects the situation on the ground, which we are gravely concerned about. But what we hope out of yesterday's announcement young Hong Kongers will see is an opportunity, an opportunity to come to Canada to work, uh, to pursue their studies should they choose to, and to build the next chapter in their life. And that is about not only strengthening the ties between Canada and the people of Hong Kong, but also bringing a longer-term prosperity to Canada. Uh, this all comes in the wake of China's crackdown uh, against democracy activists. It's been a source of concern for the international community. Some have been calling on countries like Canada to open refugee status to anybody in Hong Kong, uh, not just those who want to come and work and study in Canada. Is that something your government would be willing to consider? Well, in Canada, we have a robust asylum system, and we have been revered around the world, including by the United Nations, as being the top resettling country in the world. And the immigration plan, which I just announced a little, a little less than two weeks ago, uh, does build on that track record. And that isn't just because of the decisions that government uh, has taken. It's because of the generosity and the compassion that Canadians have shown in welcoming the world's most vulnerable, including those who, have fleeing, who are fleeing persecution. But if China can continues the crackdown in Hong Kong, would you be willing to consider broader measures like extending that refugee status to any citizen of Hong Kong? We have introduced a number of measures which reflect the situation on the ground. It ensures that uh, failed asylum claimants here in Canada uh, get faster uh, reassessment uh, when it comes to their removal, which may give them a chance to stay in Canada. It also ensures that people who are uh, seeking asylum in Canada will not be disqualified uh, by virtue alone of having been charged under China's national security law. These are two measures which are consistent and build on our reputation around the world when it comes to asylum, and I know that this is something that uh, will be very much uh, part of our plan going forward. Minister, have you considered more aggressive measures towards China? For example, restricting or eliminating uh, students, international students coming from China. There's a lot of evidence that senior members of the Chinese Communist Party send their children to study in countries like North America. And activists say that would send a really strong message to the regime, not only about what they are doing in Hong Kong, but what they have done to Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, and as well their behavior around the world. Is your government willing to get tough enough to start cracking down on things like international students? 
Well, Mercedes, as you know, Canada has taken a very strong and principled stand when it comes to the developments that we have seen, which have been gravely concerning, including the passage of the national security law by China, the expulsion of four democratically elected legislators from the Hong Kong legislature, as well as the uh, arbitrary detention of the two Michaels, who are Canadians. And as you know, uh, in each and every one of those instances, we have responded by uh, suspending our extradition treaty with Hong Kong, by restricting goods to Hong Kong, by revising our travel advice uh, to Hong Kong, and by calling for and demanding the uh, consular access be restored, which is now uh, something that we have achieved when it comes to the two Michaels. But they need to be released. They are being arbitrarily detained, and they need to be released. And yesterday's announcement does come against that backdrop. And we will continue to take those strong and principled stands as is necessary. Okay, it doesn't really answer the question I asked you, but I want to move on to asking you about whether you are prepared to evacuate the 300,000 Canadians who live in Hong Kong if necessary. Well, as you know, Mercedes, the 300,000 Canadian citizens who are currently living in Hong Kong enjoy a right of return and subject to following the COVID health protocols, which are in place to protect all of us, uh, they can come back whenever they choose. We've also announced a number of different pathways, which uh, allows immediate family members and now broader family members who have relatives here in Canada to uh, come and visit in Canada. And that applies to uh, those relatives who live in Hong Kong. And we will continue to find ways to reunite families. No, no government has done more when it comes to reuniting families in the history of this country. I'm proud of that record. Changing gears to look south of the border, uh, a new president expected in January. Of course, it will be President Joe Biden. He's currently the president-elect. Uh, you've stated on Friday that you thought there was some opportunities there for Canadian immigration with the new presidency. How do you see your file playing out with Joe Biden in the White House? Well, first, I think we were all pleased that the first call that President-elect Biden made was to Prime Minister Trudeau, and I think it underscores the special and unique relationship that exists between Canada and the United States. We have the longest unguarded border in the world. We share that border. And the movement of people across that international border is very important. When it comes to our immigration uh, policies, Mercedes, we will take decisions which are in the best interests of Canadians and reflect Canadian values. And for my part, that means introducing an immigration plan about two weeks ago that is focused on jobs, that is focused on economic recovery, and that is focused on addressing the long-term demographic challenges which our country is facing. That's why I'm excited about uh, seeing this plan come to fruition. Uh, and, and certainly in the midst of this pandemic, there are many opportunities which are abound. Minister, one last question for you. How has COVID-19 affected immigration to Canada, and when do you see this getting back on track? Well, there's no doubt that COVID-19 has impacted immigration as it has impacted every aspect of our lives. Um, I think that you will see that there is a reflection of that in the levels that we'd set for 2020. But I'm also optimistic that we have taken some real lessons coming out of the pandemic. And certainly from where we were uh, at the beginning and the onset of COVID-19 to where we are now, we are making tremendous progress by investing additional resources, by leveraging technology, we're importing more digital into our processes, and by streamlining uh, all of our processes so that we are seeing those immigration outcomes uh, occur as quickly as possible. And that's what our plan does. Our plan will build on those lessons, it will ensure that we remain competitive, and it will allow us to drive our economic recovery going forward. Minister, thank you so much for joining us today. Always uh, great to be with you, Mercedes. 
Hey, it's Mercedes on behalf of our entire team here at the West Block. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We'll get to the next segment in just a few moments, but if you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a review, give the podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and tell your friends. I reassured the premiers that the federal government will always be there to help, but reminded them as well that our resources are not infinite. You just heard a clip there from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. To give a little bit of context to what he was talking about, he was recounting the message he gave to the premiers last week on their semi-regular conference call. Ottawa's there to help, he says, but only so much. The pandemic has served as a refresher for some on the responsibilities of Canada's different levels of government, federal, provincial and municipal. Collaboration between the three has been key in combating the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, but it's also created some confusion over who is responsible for what and just how much the federal government can and should do. What are the provinces asking for and what do Canada's mayors feel about where cities fit in in all this decision making? In normal times, those answers might seem obvious, but as with everything with COVID-19, it's just not that black and white. Joining me now to talk more about this is Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi. Mayor, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mercedes. I'm just here uh, to try and lure you back to Calgary, that's all. <laughs> well, always a pleasure. I'll feel a little bit like I'm home here. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm concerned as a Calgarian about our city, as a Canadian about cities all across this country. When we heard Prime Minister Trudeau saying on Friday uh, that resources are not unlimited, did that raise concerns for you? I mean, I know cities are having a lot of trouble with budgets. Are, are, is your voice being heard in all of this between the federal government and the provinces? You know, I think it actually is, but I, I got to say, this is kind of a crash course in Canadian constitutional federalism right here. All the irritating things that we deal with all the time. You know, I had a local reporter this week ask me, Toronto has sort of defied the provincial government and gone their own way. Why doesn't Calgary do that? And I had to explain that in Ontario, public health lives with the cities, but in Alberta, it lives with the province. So as you say, the cities are always bearing the brunt of all of this uh, because we are the front lines. We are dealing with these issues, but we have very limited resources and very limited authority in which to act. I'm sitting here, this is not a fake backdrop. I'm sitting here at the Calgary Emergency Operations Center where we've got a lot of expertise. We've got a lot of ability to do things, but we're very restricted legally in what we can do. Now that said, I want to emphasize as we go into this, that we've had a really good relationship with our government here in Alberta, with Premier Kenny and his government, as well as with the federal government. And the most consequential thing the federal government has done for cities was ensure that some of that safe restart money went directly to municipalities. That is going to keep me from running a nine digit uh, budget deficit this year. The city's never run a budget deficit before. It's going to keep transit running uh, and it's going to help a lot of nonprofit organizations survive this. And that was a great thing. And that even though it flowed through the provinces, the federal government insisted that it go to the municipalities. That made a huge difference for us. Mayor, have you been satisfied with the restrictions in place in Calgary? Because as you know, this has been a debate. It's been done different ways in different parts of the country. Doctors are saying if we don't start shutting things down, people are going to die. Businesses are saying if you do shut it down, we cannot survive. It will be an absolute economic disaster. Do you think there should be tighter restrictions in, in Calgary and in Alberta? Well, let me be clear that things are really bad. 
I think people are starting now to understand things are bad. I feel a bit like Chicken Little for the last several weeks saying things are really bad. We're getting close to overwhelming our healthcare system. And people go, but we're only at 62% utilization of ICU beds. We've got tons of room. Not realizing that exponential growth means that to go from 50% to 100% is just one step. You can do that in a week, given that we're doubling every week here now. So I'm glad that people are finally seeing how important this is. And I kind of reject the current argument that this is about the economy or public health. Because if you don't have public health, you don't have an economy. Everything will shut down anyway. Uh, the example is often used by some folks who don't believe in restrictions of Sweden. Well, Sweden not only had multiple times the death rate of its neighbors, its economy also contracted 8.6% in the second quarter because people were taking time off to be sick and to isolate. And so ultimately, I don't like setting it up as the economy or public health because you can't have one without the other. And so it's critical for us to get this right. And I believe in evidence-based decision-making. I've been working with a group of academics here at the University of Calgary to really look at what interventions work and which ones don't. And I'm really happy that the Alberta government this week put in some restrictions because for the last couple of weeks, they've been implying that this isn't really that big a deal. And uh, the restrictions, however, I think for a lot of Calgarians feel a bit random. We're leaving casinos open, but we're stopping kids' sports. And we don't really have a great sense of where the contact uh, spread is happening here in Alberta because our contact tracing system is overwhelmed. So what we have to do is look at evidence from other jurisdictions of where spread is really happening and start to crack down on that instead of sort of ad hoc restrictions. If we don't do that, then there will be no way to prevent a full lockdown and nobody wants that. So, Mayor, am I correct in interpreting that as, as you believe there should be further restrictions than there are right now? You're happy to see these initial ones, but you'd like to see more? I believe there should be smart restrictions. Maybe some of the ones that are put in place can be lifted and they can be replaced with other ones, but we really need to go to where the source is spreading. So I'll give you an example. There's a huge backlash this week after the Premier made his announcement from parents saying, why in the world are you stopping my kids' sports, which is helping them keep them sane, helping them have a bit of normalcy in their lives, where there's very little evidence of spread in kids' sports. Now, we don't actually know if that's true because two-thirds of cases, we don't know where they came from. But if the Premier had said, listen, we need to keep the schools open and we're seeing spread in schools, so the, what we need to do is restrict our kids' activities outside of school so we can get the virus out of the schools and keep the schools open, I think people would have gone, okay, that makes sense. But we've got to really be able to justify every one of these restrictions uh, and make sure they're ones that make sense. Mayor Nenshi, that's all the time we have for today. But thank you so much for joining us with this update. And we send our best wishes to all the Calgarians out there. Stay safe, everyone. Well, there you have it, this week's West Block podcast. Sadly, we're out of time for today. But not to worry, there is a whole other bonus episode with my full Aaron O'Toole interview just waiting for you to listen to.